you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That as much as you reject me today, you are going to be desperate to see me again. And when you do see me again, you're going to praise me and, and, and declare what a blessing it is that I have arrived. So that's how Matthew 23 ends, and that's the introduction to Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, the disciples ask this question, and we need to understand that the context of this question is what just happened in Matthew 23. And so the disciples ask the question as, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives. So he leaves uh, the temple, and he goes over to the Mount of Olives, which is where he's going to return, and from there he's overlooking Jerusalem, foreseeing the destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem, and also foreseeing his return to the Mount of Olives. But then the, the disciples join him on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And often when we read this, we just read, we, we think that these things are what's in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 24. But if we look at the context of the conversation, they're asking about this, this judgment that is going to be upon Jerusalem and upon the religious leadership. Uh, when will these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming? Because he said, you're not going to see me again until you're, you're crying out for me. And then you declare what a blessing it is that I arrive. So when will the destruction of Jerusalem be? And when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And that's not the end of the world, but the end of the age. And the introduction of the new age, uh, what we refer to as the millennium, or actually the kingdom of God. So, so when, when are these things going to take place? So, so again, we have to understand this context. Now, he goes on to warn them not to be deceived. And so again, sometimes we just take that to mean general deception. But in the context of the conversation, it is deception about his coming specifically. Do not be deceived about my coming, is what he means by don't be deceived. So he goes on and now he explains that you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. And certainly, despite our technological advances, despite everything that the atheists and the evolutionists and, and, and arrogant mankind and philosophers have told us about how man is advancing, here in 2018, we live in the most dangerous of times. This is unprecedented in terms of the chaos and, and danger all around us. And, and we kind of numb ourselves by watching lots of TV and lots of movies and lots of music and everybody's got iPads and iPhone and listening to music and, and just kind of numbing ourselves. Because to actually face the, the reality of the danger we live in, uh, it, it, we will lose our minds if we don't have some kind of anchor, if we don't understand God's plan. But certainly we are seeing this instability uh, since the end of the Cold War, it's just escalating the instability of, in the world. So we'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So these things are necessary. So there is going to be, there needs to be, as we, we've read in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the political totalitarian beast system, Babylonian system that gets implemented. And he says that all these things must come to pass because there has to be this transition from where we are now or where they were then into the new system. And that's going to be difficult because everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but uh, most nations, the rulers of these nations, are trying to implement the Nimrod agenda 
upon which their very their very societies are based. So every civilized every nation can trace its roots, except for Israel. Every nation, the, not not the nation of Israel as we call it today, but the people of Israel, every other tribe of the earth can trace its roots of civilization back to Nimrod and the Nimrod agenda that we see in Genesis 11 and the totalitarian system, religious political system that he implemented or tried to implement before he was interrupted. The language was confused, but the agenda stayed in their minds. And so from there, we see the empire of Egypt, the empire of Assyria, all these different empires rise up carrying the agenda from Nimrod. And so this is, you know, nothing is new. These I, men die, ideas don't. So the idea lives on. So everybody has been trying to get this totalitarian control uh, over their nations, except for those who are influenced by the Judeo-Christian principles. Now, now that we have moved into a global world, uh, and technology has enabled that, now there's this competition for globalization and global rule. And there is going to be someone, some nation, some ideology that ultimately will be the successful one in implementing this Nimrodian totalitarian control over mankind, which ultimately means bringing mankind under subjection to the devil. Because the devil's agenda is and has always been to be like the Most High and to have all mankind bow down and worship him. And that's his agenda, but he, has, he needs a proxy. He needs to do this through man, and as we glimpsed into the book of Revelation, we understand that this man, uh, Jesus referred to as the beast, the political beast, and he's going to be supported by a religious beast. And so these things must come to pass. This is necessary. But the end is not yet. So we who understand the Lord's words, everyone around us is going to be panicking and think it's the end of the world and the sky is falling, and we need to look at all of this and say, you ain't seen nothing yet. This, this, this is just the beginning. And in fact, the Lord will say that. Now, this is what I want to focus on for a bit. This verse, verse 7. He says, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. Now, kingdom against kingdom should be pretty clear. You have a king, you have a kingdom. And so these are nations that are going to be going to war. And it's that they both have the Nimrod agenda, trying to get supremacy and domination over the other. But what might not be so clear, because of our modern English language, uh, nation shall rise against nation. This is not the same as kingdom against kingdom. So when we talk about kingdom against kingdom, we're talking in the Greek basileia, which is an actual empire, or, or a kingdom, I should say. Now, nation against nation is ethnos, ethnos, and we can think of that as an ethnic group or a tribe, a, a tribe of people. And why I want to emphasize this for us today is that when we think of wars and kingdom against kingdom, you know, here we are in Canada, if you're in America, different people all over the world are tuning in, uh, whatever nation you're in, you think of your nation going to war against another nation. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying ethnos against ethnos. And what this can very easily refer to is civil war. War within the boundaries of a nation. But you have ethnic group within that nation going up against ethnic group. And this past week, 
we have certainly seen a turning point. And that turning point I refer to, if you haven't seen it already, and I'm sure most of you are tuned into this, is the uh, recent arrest of a, an activist in the UK called Tommy Robinson. And I just want to uh, just zero in uh, for a moment on that arrest, because it is significant. And if you haven't seen it, I'll just uh, take a moment here for you just to uh, take a listen to what happened. Almost 10,000 people. This is the verdict. So the trial's ended, the jury are making their mind up, and this is the verdict. This is the verdict today. So I can see someone. Yeah, mate, yeah. yeah. You doing all right? Um, uh, yeah, 29, 29 of them on trial, two women for grooming 11 year olds. So they were allegedly grooming Nah, 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 just doing this, just doing like a, just doing the media, mate, just, show, just trying to show people who are watching. This is what's happening, this is what the case is, this is how many girls were victims, this is what they've said, and this is what they've done. Yeah, mate. Fucking hanging out, I swear it. No, no. Are they in prison? I know, you've been in there. You just got out. You just got out. What was it like? Are you going to arrest me? My colleague's going to explain what's going to happen next, right? Am I being arrested? I am being arrested. I've caused a breach of peace. I'm being arrested. The content of what I'm streaming. Okay, not sure if you could hear all of what was going on there, but if you do look up the arrest of Tommy Robinson, what you'll see is that he is arrested, and you'll hear the police officer say that he's being arrested for suspicion of breach of the peace. For suspicion of breach of the peace. I'm not sure what exactly that means, just to say suspicion. But when he actually gets sentenced by the judge... Give me one second here. Looks like I just lost the sound there for a little bit. Um, I was just saying that when uh, Tommy Robinson was sentenced, he was sentenced for, or he was arrested for, uh, suspicion of breach of the peace. When he was actually sentenced, 
he was sentenced for contempt of court. So that it was a it was a bait and switch. And then when he was being sentenced, the suspended sentence that he was under, the judge actually said that he didn't care about the suspended sentence. He was he was judge he was uh, sentencing him for what happened right then and there. Now Tommy Robinson is trying to bring to attention and, and keep in the public's mind what's going on with these Muslim rape gangs in the UK. And there's over the last two three decades, there's been at least a million young girls, mostly white young girls, age 11, 12, 13, that have been gang raped by these rape gangs. And he didn't want the public to forget. In fact, he himself he had a a, a niece uh, from Luton that was subjected to this type of uh, torture, and uh, you know, many of these girls end up killing themselves, and they just their lives are destroyed. And so he did not want the public to forget. And so while these uh, sentences are taking place, he was there to report as an independent journalist on what these sentences were and, and to ensure that if these sentences are light, you know, oh, it was a cultural difference and you didn't understand, you're free to go, that he keeps that in the, in the public's mind. The judge did not like this. And so the same judge that's responsible for sentencing these grooming, grooming, quote, it's a euphemism, these rape gangs, uh, was the same judge that sentenced Tommy, didn't allow him to have access to his own lawyer, assigned a duty lawyer from the government, and uh, just he was the judge and jury. This is England that is founded upon the, the Magna Carta. And, and the Magna Carta is sort of really the, the uh, foundation of most Western law. And, and, and it was really this key that no free man shall be seized or imprisoned except by the lawful judgment of his equals. So in this case, there was no jury. Uh, the judge just decided to just sentence him, send him straight to jail uh, without any appeal uh, or by the law of the land. And yet, on a technicality, he was using the law of the land, but he made it quite clear by arrest, having him arrested uh, for suspicion of breach of peace and then sentenced for something else. Uh, he just, they just want to get rid of him. This, this guy is uh, somebody, and everybody has, has an opinion about him. Uh, some people hate him, some people love him. Uh, the point is, that I want to make, is uh, not so much whether he, you, should, he, should, you should love him or hate him. Uh, it's his courage and his willingness to stand up for British values and British people and to not want the plight of these victims to be forgotten and to hold the legal system accountable as they are sentencing these men to ensure that the sentences are appropriate. Instead, this judicial system is being extremely lenient with these men, and somebody like a Tommy Robinson is dealt with swiftly. Swiftly. Why can't we move with this kind of speed when we see our young daughters being destroyed? Why, why isn't there this swift speed then? Instead, we go for decades ignoring you know, people seeing the, the police, the judicial system, the social services system, all of these people fully aware of what's going on and the pedophilia, the evil, and nobody saying anything, everybody dragging their feet. But when it comes to a Briton saying, hey, everybody, let's keep in mind what's going on here, swift injustice. Now, this is about freedom of speech. That's what this is. And when you take away freedom of speech, watch out. In fact, there's a saying, and I don't remember who said this, but he said, take away all my freedoms. Take away all my freedoms. Accept my freedom of speech. And with it, I shall win back all the others. That's how important freedom of speech is. And we are moving towards this totalitarian system. The socialist slash communist left is, is totalitarian by nature. 
And then we have this uh, Islamic uh, political system that is also totalitarian. And the two are colluding with each other. And what Tommy Robinson represents is every man. We are all Tommy Robinson. And our freedom is being taken away from us. And Christ tells us these things must be in order to move toward this totalitarian system. And these two, right now, what I can see on the world scene, uh, the socialist left, extreme communist left, and the uh, Islamic uh, political system, both totalitarian in nature, actually colluding with each other. And this spells trouble for the everyday man. And so you can look at Tommy Robinson and say, poor soul, which, by the way, the judge basically gave him a death sentence. Uh, there was a man in England that put a bacon sandwich beside a mosque and he was sentenced to a year in jail. He was dead in a week because the Muslim gangs run the, uh, the prisons. And so by sentencing Tommy Robinson to prison, and the, the lawyer actually pointed this out to the judge that he could die in prison, and the judge basically scoffed and said, well, he knew what was coming to him. Uh, and so this ability to just take people off the street without jury, without a proper trial, and just imprison them and just cause them to disappear. This is totalitarianism. And make no mistake, this is aimed at, ultimately it's going to be aimed at Christians. So we are all Tommy Robinson. And when you see Muslim rape gangs raping these young 11, 12, 13-year-old white girls, they, to the Muslim mind, these are the daughters of the Crusaders. So the Muslim rape gangs see these girls as daughters of Christians even though we know that Britain is hardly a Christian nation anymore. But to their mind, these are Christian nations, and these are the daughters of Christians. And so it is a destruction of the Christian, Judeo-Christian values. And the left, taking people like Tommy Robinson off the street, is also an attack on the Judeo-Christian foundation of society. So this uh, is what we see now. What, what I wanted to make, uh, sorry, the point that I wanted to make here is that this is significant. When you see freedom of speech being taken away, and the judge putting a gag order on, on Tommy Robinson's arrest so that nobody could report on it, uh, th those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. They're going to be pushing and pushing and pushing and end up pushing people too far. And so what's going, what we're going to see happen, I predict, is that the imprison this, this wrongful imprisonment, and if he dies in prison, uh, it's going to trigger people to the far right. So you're going to see a rising of the far right. The everyday people who really have no interest in being extremists, when their back is against the wall and they do not have freedom of speech, they are going to uh, be susceptible to leaders who rise up with strong, decisive actions and the far right is going to grow in popularity. So when we see this, nation shall rise against nation, ethnos against ethnos. So if you allow an ethnic group, and they say 93% of all these rapes that are happening in the UK are by Pakistani men, Pakistani Muslims. And so you're going to have people now rise up with hatred in their heart towards all Pakistanis and not being able to differentiate and so this one ethnic group is going to become a target. They're going to fight back and see that all whites are going to then be their enemies and they're not going to differentiate. And, and we're going to see this ethnic polarization. And that is going to be in every Western nation that is trying to curtail free speech. 
And this is why I've been urging us to stay away from these ethnically-based movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter or the English Defense League, Antifa, uh, uh, Islam. All of these ideologies are there to divide and, and create this unrest. And the Marxist socialists, the elite, the global elite, they love funding this. They love this. this they, they want to tear down. They want to deconstruct society so that they can reconstruct it the way they want it. And what they don't want is a Judeo-Christian foundation. So we need to be very sensitive to what is happening around us. The world is being reconfigured, and this internal strife, ethnos against ethnos, is going to bring down the Western nations and pave the way for this totalitarian system, because the Western nations founded with Judeo-Christian principles right now are ruling the world. They are the, you know, Britain and America, Canada. We, we have been the policemen of the world, but we're going to be weakened and we're going to come down and other systems are going to now take over. Christ says that all of this is the beginning of sorrows. It's just the beginning of sorrows. So buckle up. Let's not lose our heads here. And let's not get caught up in any of these movements. Let's not get caught up in any, let's just be aware of what's going on and the implications and the significance of what's going on. So Christ tells us that all of this is just the beginning of sorrows. So, so the, the world is changing, and not in a good way. And Christ is telling us, have backbone, and be prepared to suffer, because that's, that's what's going to happen. When the devil is in control, God's people are going to suffer. So I just want to flip a little bit to John 16. Uh, because it's going to uh, reinforce our understanding of Matthew 24. In John 16, Christ says, These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. The, the, the word is scandalized. So don't be offended that things are going to happen that would scandalize the average person. But Christ is telling us ahead of time that, I'm telling you ahead of time so you will not be scandalized. You will not be offended. And by scandalized, what we could really say is that you will not apostatize. You will not be so offended and so upset that it will cause you to sin. And that's what we've been looking at in Hebrews. That Hebrews, they were facing uh, such a scandal and such a, a, a level of pers intense persecution that they were beginning to rewind. They were beginning to back up. They were putting it in reverse and saying, let me leave Christ and go back to Judaism. They were scandalized because of the intense persecution. And so we're, we're borrowing the lessons from Hebrews to apply to the future that has been revealed to us through Revelation, also through Matthew 24, also here in John 16. These things I'm telling you that you should not be offended. So we're aware. We're seeing what's coming, and we're understanding it's just the beginning. We're in this for the long haul. So he says, don't be offended. They're going to put you out of the assemblies. You're going to be persona non grata. That's the reconfiguration that's taking place here. So whether it's, the again, the far left, the socialist communist left, whether it's Islam, both sides hate Christians. Don't think that either of these uh, love us and, and want the best for us. Both sides want to put us down. And whichever side ultimately succeeds, they will put you out of assembly. You'll become persona non grata. Yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. And what this is speaking of, really, what I, what I see here, is what I would refer to as ideological possession. 
when, when somebody becomes so possessed by an ideology that they do whatever the ideology dictates and they don't really, they can't think for themselves. And I would say that, you know, what is the difference between the ideologically possessed and the religiously devout, somebody who's truly devout to the Lord? What's the difference? I would say there are three fundamental differences between the ideologically possessed and, and those of us who are devout to the Word of God. The ideologically possessed, and this is a point that I got from Jordan Peterson, professor in Toronto. He said that the ideologically possessed have an unearned sense of uh, superiority. That simply by subscribing to this ideology, immediately and magically, I'm better than you. I'm superior to you. So the ideologically possessed have this sense of moral superiority that is unearned. They have done nothing to become superior, except subscribe to an ideology. Number two, the ideologically possessed, and this is my observation, uh, are just yellow pencils. When you are ideologically possessed, your uniqueness is irrelevant. The particular talents, abilities, and gifts that you have, nobody cares. Who cares? All that matters, and this is the third uh, symptom of the ideologically possessed, all that matters is the utopian outcome that is promised. And the fact that you're a yellow pencil and you're just a cog in the wheel and you really have no value as an individual means you are expendable. And in fact, as one that is ideologically possessed, we expect you to expend your life, to sacrifice your life on the march to this utopian promise which has never been proven. There is no time in history when we were able to look back at, at this particular, whatever ideology it is, and say, oh, here's a time when there was paradise. Here's a time when everybody was blessed. There was no violence. This is just a wonderful utopia. Never. And so there's a, this unproven utopia that the ideologically possessed believe in wholeheartedly and are willing to sacrifice themselves and everybody else on this march towards this uh, uh, fictional uh, and promised utopia. So these are, I would say, the three significant symptoms of the ideologically uh, possessed. Unearned sense of moral superiority, insignificance as an individual, just a yellow pencil, and this willingness to sacrifice all for a fictional utopia that has never been proven. And so he says here, the time will come that whoever kills you will think that he does God's service. And again, this is, if, if you look at, for example, we're, we're in the month of Ramadan now, and there is just so much uh, bloodshed during the month of Ramadan because the ideology promises uh, significant benefits and rewards from Allah if you kill infidels during this particular month. Now, the mainstream media is not going to report. So most people are just, la, 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 no idea what's going on, but there's a lot going on. And just as an example of ideological possession, in, in Pakistan, a man's father and brother gouge out his eyes for violating Islamic values. This is their son. This is their brother. But the ideology has such a grip on them that if he's not fasting during Ramadan, he deserves the, the uh, most vicious of punishments. You see uh, this group Antifa, where uh, they are so ideologically possessed that they will just maim and harm anybody. Old women, children, it just doesn't matter. If, if they label you as a fascist, then you get the full force of their violence. For what? For this promised utopia of uh, socialism that they're, that they're striving towards. So we are in for a warm time. 
uh, the future is going to be warm. In fact, it's going to be hot. And so this is this time coming that we will be killed, and the people who are killing us will think that they're doing, they're doing God a favor. They're, they're serving God. And why will they do these things? And these things they will do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, what is really interesting is I got this message on Facebook from a Christian in the Church of God movement. And uh, I went on his website, and I see that they do believe, uh, I think they're an offshoot of the worldwide Church of God. But he says here, Allah is the one true God of the Bible. And CGI and the rest of the WCG churches and offshoots are wrong in believing in the idolatry of Binitarianism, which we don't believe, wrong enough to get into the second resurrection, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and Ephesians 5. Now, this is amazing to me, that somebody who actually understands the Bible believes that Allah is the same God as the Bible. And I've done a couple of uh, debates with Muslims to expose their ideology and expose their beliefs and the teachings in the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sirah, the Sunnah, uh, to show that this is a totally different God. Uh, and yet we have somebody in the Church of God movement already, and I knew this was coming, but already it's here, that believe that Allah is... So this person obviously hasn't studied their, their literature. It's just They're just this concept of oneness of God, which is a, based on Greek philosophy, which Muhammad would have picked up from the Gnostic Christians in, in the 7th century. Uh, without reading, he believes it's the same God. So if he believes it's the same God, that, let's, let's park that, because in Matthew 24, uh, Christ has something to say about that. But because they have not known the Father nor me, this is why they're going to do these things. That this understanding that we have and that we're getting from Hebrews around the significance of Christ, the superiority of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ, this understanding is what enables us to really understand God, to understand Christ and His Father. But they don't understand this. And so... This is why they'll do these things. But he says, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. So God's words, Christ's words are his, nothing can change them. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not. So we have to study his word and be familiar with it. Because this, this is coming. And this reconfiguration that's taking place, we understand why it's taking place. So he says, uh, the time shall come when you, that you may remember that I told you about them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. So he knew this all, all the time, but he didn't tell them because he was with them. And then maybe there's other things that he needs to learn, they need to learn, and while he was with them, these things are not going to happen. But now he's going away. So now he's sharing these things with them. But because, now <laughs> verse 6, because I have said these things unto you, he says here, because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. So, so they are very, very sad now because Christ is making it very clear what is going to happen to them. And so sorrow has filled their heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So, so I'm, I'm going, but you're going to have the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. And the, the English translation here says, when he has come. So, so uh, when he has come is actually an incorrect translation uh, because you're taking a demonstrative pronoun in the Greek, which is masculine, singular. But, but when you are translating, Greek uses something called natural gender. When you're translating a demonstrative pronoun from one language 
that uses natural gender to English, you have to use your head. And so just because it's masculine singular in the Greek doesn't mean it's masculine singular in the uh, English. So a table might be referred to in, in the Greek, as if you're using a demonstrative pronoun, as he. But when you're translating into English, you wouldn't talk about a table as he. You would translate it as it. And so the proper translation here would be, and when it is come, it will reprove the world of sin. So the world is going to be full of lawlessness, full of iniquity. But the Holy Spirit is going to come and reprove the world of this iniquity and of righteousness and of judgment. And the question we have to ask is, how? Will the Holy Spirit just talk out of the clouds? Or is the Holy Spirit going to be put inside the followers of Christ and the followers of Christ are going to reprove the world of sin? Even though sin is just out of control, that there are, God is going to have faithful witnesses who are going to say, no, this is God's law, and this is sin, and, and this is righteousness. He says, Howbeit, when it, the spirit of truth, is come, it will guide you into all truth. And certainly John has received the book of Revelation after this as guidance so that we understand all the things that are going to come to pass. For it shall not speak of itself, but whatsoever it shall hear, that shall it speak, and it will show you things to come. And so the Holy Spirit is going to enable us to see the future. And, and when everybody's losing their heads, we're cool, we're calm, we're collected. Because we, all, we know this is just the beginning. Notice this, verse 14. It shall glorify me. So anyone who is not understanding the role of Jesus Christ and the superiority of Jesus Christ and how God the Father has given him a name above every name and how he is to be worshipped, then this is not the Holy Spirit. This does not come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will glorify Christ. For it shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Truly, truly, I say to you that you shall weep and mourn. You shall, you shall weep and lament. So again, uh, Jesus Christ is making it clear to us that we are entering into a time of sorrow. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Because I've told you these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Truly, truly, I'm telling you, you shall weep and lament. This is the future. And so people are looking at Tommy Robinson and saying, Tommy Robinson and saying, oh, poor soul. They don't understand that Tommy Robinson is just a symptom of a machinery that is being set up in place, and it's being set up in place by the devil, and ultimately it is going to target Christians. Truly, truly, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. They're, they're going to have a wonderful wail of a time. And you shall be sorrowful. You know, do we accept the word of God or not? So if, if you are being called to Christ, Christ does not sugarcoat. He doesn't say, come to me and you'll get that flat screen TV. You'll get that brand new car you've always dreamed of. You'll live in a big house. You'll wear the finest clothes. You'll wear the finest jewelry. You can have the most expensive perfume. This is the wonderful, you'll, have, you'll be in the best of health. Come to me, this is, this is the path. And of course, Christ wouldn't say that directly. His false min the, the false ministers of Christ are saying this. And so people think that that's the way. The true ministers of Christ are saying, look, if you are being called, if God is using the Holy Spirit to draw you, understand what you're getting into. Understand what you're getting into. Yes, ultimately, 
you will, we, we will be joyful, and Christ will tell us that. But there's a period before the joy where the devil gets to run his course. And God is going to bring him to judgment. But before he brings him to judgment and brings all his servants to judgment, he allows them to have their way. Just so we can fully see what is your intention, what is your motive, what is in your heart, what, what, what do you truly desire, and then you're going to be judged. So this is the reality of the walk with Christ. You shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful. But, but, this is the word of the Lord, your sorrow shall be turned to joy. Hang in there. Have a long-term view. This period of instability, chaos, and sorrow is, it's just a period. It's just a season. See your way through this season. And there is such joy on the other end, and, and such joy that is eternal. So, you know, if you do not have something in your life that you're willing to die for, then you're not alive. This is the paradox of life. If your life is so important to you that you would not die for anything or anybody, then, I'm sorry, you're living a really shallow life and you're not even alive. We come alive when there's purpose to our lives. And what God is doing is calling us to a very, very high purpose that involves all mankind. Ultimately, it involves the whole universe. And are we willing to die for it? He died for us, recruited us into this grand purpose. Are we willing to die for him if necessary? Are we willing to suffer for him if necessary? To help in this process of overturning the beast, the kingdoms of this world. When he returns, he says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So he says, but. Whenever you see the word but, it means you can strike out everything that comes before it. And the only thing that matters after the word but is whatever comes after the word but. So all of this sorrow, this weeping, this lamentation, the rejoicing of the world, the, the, the sorrowness, the sorrowfulness of God's people, all of it is irrelevant. It all disappears. And the only thing that matters now is what comes after the word but. And that is that our sorrow shall be turned into joy. And, and it's an eternal joy. It's a deep, everlasting joy. So he says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. This is the sorrow. This is the, the world is changing. The, the nations that have been in power, that have been advanced, what we would call the first world nations, have all been blessed by the influence of Judeo-Christian principles and the honoring of the individual and the honor of freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of worship. Uh, all of this is going away. And so a new system is taking over. And in this new system, they're going to deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations. So all the nations agree that, that somehow they've all been infiltrated, they've all been turned over, and they all hate the name of Jesus Christ. And so you shall be afflicted by all, hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another. And already, I, I mean, I knew this was coming. I fully expect that brethren that we see today, in the future, we'll see them in the mosque. Because this is the nature of Islam. This is, you know, we have 1,400 years of big data to analyze how this thing works. You think Afghanistan was Muslim? It was Buddhist. I Iran was Zoroastrian. Egypt was Christian. 
uh, Syria was Christian. Uh, uh, North, North Africa and Middle East, these were Christian nations. Oh, in fact, Turkey, what we, when we read of the churches, the seven churches in Revelation, they're all in Turkey. It was taken for granted that this was a Christian nation. Now if I say Turkey, you think Muslim. And, and in Islam nearly took over Europe. But there was such a fight and, and a pushing back. And yes, it was bloody and it was violent. But today, Europe is basically free and, and uh, based on Judeo-Christian principles because of that fighting back. Today, we don't see this fighting back. In fact, we see the protection uh, of this special ethnic group. And they're allowed to do whatever they like. If you're a Christian baker and you will not bake a homosexual cake uh, or a cake for a homosexual wedding, you'll lose your business. But you'll never hear that about a Muslim. That I went to a Muslim baker and I was trying to get a homosexual, not me, but someone was trying to get a homosexual cake made, and so now they're going to lose their business? No way. So these nations that were, we would never think of them as Islamic, today we take it for granted they're Islamic. And that's the nature of this totalitarian system. And so do not be surprised if you see Sweden, Germany, France, England, and nation, other nations becoming ruled by Sharia law. That's certainly the agenda. Uh, so now, because of this new environment, not a few, but many, the very thing that Christ said, don't be, don't be scandalized. The very thing that he, the instruction not to be scandalized, it's going to be so intense, it's going to be so hot, that people are going to be offended. And they are going to turn back. The very thing that Hebrews is all about, that, that Paul is trying to prevent, uh, this is what's coming. And that's why the book of Hebrews is such an important resource for us. Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another. Christ says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. But then he tells us here that what's going to happen, this marathon that we are running, it's a long one. And people are going to be dropping like flies. On this race to the finish line, people are going to be dropping like flies. So not a few, but many are going to be offended. It's too intense. They weren't expecting it. They weren't watching. And they're going to betray one another. That's, that's, that when you face these sort of totalitarian systems, it's terrifying. And they shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets or false teachers shall rise and shall deceive many. And again, this is not generic deception. The context of the conversation is deception around the coming of the Lord. Deception around His return. And so there's going to be many false prophets, many false teachers who are going to be talking about the return of Christ, but it's a deception. And so this whole passage from Matthew 23 to Matthew 25, the Lord is giving us this, this instruction of this unit of instruction so that we do not fall victim to the deception specifically around His return. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And most certainly, we are entering into this age when iniquity is abounding. So if we look at the UK, I don't know if there is any evil greater than abusing in, in the most horrific way the most vulnerable in our society. And that is what has been happening in the UK for the last 30 years. Every single, I think it's every single town, every single city in the UK has suffered this, this uh, tragedy. And, and the last estimate I saw is something like a million girls have been victims of this uh, over uh, the UK over the last two, three decades. And t 
Tommy Robinson, who's trying to keep this in the British mind and trying to expose the hypocrisy, uh, he gets swift injustice. Within a matter of hours, he's thrown in prison. He's, he's, he's given a death sentence, basically. If he comes out of there alive, he's got to, be, he's got to spend 400 days uh, where every single day, every single hour of every day is a threat to his life. Uh, if he comes out of there alive, it, it is truly a miracle. So he's basically been sentenced to death for independent journalism, the free press. Meanwhile, these perpetrators have been, have been getting away with this for decades. Now, it says that the iniquity of many shall, uh, or the iniquity is going to just be out of control. In this very same environment, we'll go to a different nation now, we're going to go to America, where we see this uh, porn star. The, 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 the news refers to her as um, an adult film star being honored with the key to the city, the mayor giving her the key to the city and, and naming a day after her. And, and, and this, 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 this is, a, a, this is porno, pornographic filth. And, and she's being honored. And someone like Tommy Robinson is being thrown into, into prison for just trying to protect his country and, and keep his country uh, aware. Times are changing. And all these Western nations are changing. And here, if we look at Paris, let's go to Europe. And this is not the way people remember Paris. Well, here's Paris today. The whole world is being turned upside down. There's a reconfiguration. And, and it's not good for Christianity. It is not good for Christianity. And unfortunately, people spend so much time being entertained, not realizing that every form of entertainment is a form of programming. And, and, and messing up our minds so that we cannot understand iniquity. We, we no longer understand iniquity. In fact, when you look at the royal wedding that just took place recently, uh, everyone is just, you know, 11, 12 million people tuned in to watch it, and everybody's just so happy with this uh, wonderful fairy tale, like, you know, she's all dressed in white. Uh, God refers to this as adultery. She had a Jewish wedding in Jamaica, divorced her Jewish husband, dropped him like a, a hot potato, uh, went on to have uh, relations with someone else in Toronto, then met this prince, now she's married to him, but she's a divorced woman. And God says this is uh, adultery. And so the whole world is celebrating adultery because we're being programmed and we no longer can see things the way God expects us to see them. So he says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved. So this most certainly is a marathon. We are running a marathon. And, 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 and it's all about crossing the finish line. We need to stay with this until the end. And the Lord is making it clear to us that it's a difficult race. And many are going to drop out of the race. Many are going to be scandalized because of the difficulty of the race. We need to set our sights on the finish line and keep going no matter what. He says, therefore, so now I want to just flip to, as we transition into Hebrews, he says here, remember when we were in chapter 1, you know, let's just combine this with, with uh, Matthew 24, we must endure to the end, we cannot drop out. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should, we should let them slip. And remember, if you have a red-letter Bible, all the red letters are the words of the Lord directly. So in these last times, he's spoken, God has spoken to us by his Son. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip and fall out of the race.
in chapter 4, he says, <clears throat> Let us therefore fear. Let us therefore fear. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, that is, crossing the finish line, any of you should seem to come short of it. Any of you. So any of us could, could fall, just as in the first century, so now. The Lord is giving us these warnings to say that any of us could stumble. But he's telling us ahead of time so that we're not scandalized. And we just fix our minds. You know, Paul says that uh, there's a crown laid up for him. And not only for him, but for all those who love his appearing. So all of us who are looking for the appearing of the Lord, all of us who are not going to allow ourselves to be deceived, we're looking for his appearing, this is what we're focused That's when the rest comes. Before then, it's labor. We're going to be laboring until he comes. And he says here in Matthew 24, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. So all nations are going to hate Christ, and yet this gospel will be preached to all nations. That Christ is going to infuse the Holy Spirit in people all over the world, all tribes. This, is not, this has nothing to do with ethnicity. Because all tribes are being grafted into Israel. Israel was always a proxy for God to save all of mankind. From the beginning uh, with Adam and Eve, from the moment that they fell, God set in, plan, set in motion a plan to redeem mankind. And he's doing it now through this mechanism that we call Israel. And so all tribes of the earth are going to be brought in. And you're seeing now in these totalitarian systems, in Iran, in China, uh, in Pakistan, all over, uh, Christians people coming to the Bible. And, and I understood in, uh, recently in India, in one city, 10,000 people were observing the Passover. So this knowledge is getting out there. This gospel shall be preached, and that is our job. It is our job to be witnesses, to bring the gospel to mankind. That is our work. And so we cannot get caught up in these ethnic conflicts. We cannot get caught up in political agendas. We can have no other agenda except this. We, our agenda is the kingdom of God. Our agenda is loving all mankind, wanting to see all mankind come out of the darkness that the devil has cast over the earth, to be the light of the kingdom. And so we will preach this kingdom, and we will tell mankind about the, 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 the beauty that is in store for them when Christ returns. So this gospel, notice that, that this is being preached in an environment of intense hostility. And yet, the people of God are fearless, and they are preaching this gospel in, uh, to all nations, and all nations are going to be uh, hating the Christian. All nations will agree that to the, the followers of Christ are to be hated, and yet this witness shall still go out, and then shall the end come. So back to Hebrews. He says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So anciently, they couldn't face the giants in the land, and they didn't believe God, so they didn't want to go into the promised land. And then in the first century, the Hebrews saw the giants in the land. It was the Romans at the time. And so they didn't want to continue. They wanted to drop out of the race. Uh, this is unbelief. And God is telling us now there are going to be giants in the land again. But we mustn't worry about it. Because he has the keys of death and of Hades, of the grave. He can unlock the grave. He has the ability to bring us back to life. And so he says, don't be afraid of them. The worst they can do is kill you. That's the end. So when they're done, that's the end. Then they can't do anything else. 
but he can then bring us back to life. And he has the ability to judge people. God has the ability to judge people after they've died. So he says, we must, and let's take this first century instruction to the Hebrews who are facing a very similar situation that we will be facing in the near future. Let us labor, therefore. This is not the time to rest. This is a time of difficulty. This is a time of labor pains. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. We must believe the word of God. Back to Matthew 24. Therefore, remember, if we look at this as a unit of teaching from Matthew 23 to Matthew 25, then the unit of teaching is about the return of Christ and what happens immediately before and when he returns and how he returns. And it's about not being deceived because there's going to be a lot of teaching in the end time about the return of Christ. We mustn't be deceived about it. So he says, Therefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert. Go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers. Believe it not. Who are they? So we just heard that all nations are going to hate Christians. They're going to hate that they name Christ, the true Christ of the Bible. And now he's saying, and and Christians are going to be persecuted. And those who kill us from John 16 will think that they're doing God's service. But now there's going to be false prophets, false teachers, talking about the return of Christ. And we mustn't be deceived. And he says here, if they shall, therefore, so as, as a result of what he's taught us, therefore if they shall say unto you, behold he is in the desert, do not go forth. Now we have to ask ourselves, why does Christ talk about the desert? Who on earth we, we know he's returning to the Mount of Olives. That's what the scriptures say. So who would say otherwise? Who's going to say that he's returning to the desert? Is there something that's sweeping the world? Is there a movement that's sweeping the world today that's going to claim that Christ is returning to the, to the desert? Well, I don't know. Let's take a look at this hadith. It says here that the, the hadith, that's the sayings of the prophet, uh, Islamic prophet Muhammad, Jesus praying behind the Mahdi, which is their... Uh, their coming ruler, refers to a collection of hadith related about the prophecy that Jesus will follow the Mahdi's lead in Salat when after he descends. So he's going to descend and he's going to go to Mecca. And the Mahdi is going to lead prayer. He's going to offer Jesus to lead the prayer. And Jesus is going to say, no, you're superior to me. I'll pray behind you. And so this is all going to happen in the desert. Mahdi is the 12th Imam of the Shia Muslims, and Salat is the Islamic practice of the worship of God, which Muslims perform uh, five times a day. The prophecy is narrated in numerous Hadith collections, both Sunni and Shiite. A total of 29 Hadith relate to the return of Jesus and his prayer with Mahdi's lead. So they are going to claim that somebody named Christ has returned with the Mahdi, And he's praying in the desert. And very, very clearly, Christ is telling us here that when we see that teaching, and they say, behold, he is in the desert. (laughs) Christ is saying, don't believe them, do not go. Behold, he's in the secret chambers, he's in the the mosque. Don't believe it. He goes on here in verse 42. Watch therefore, 
for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. So he tells us what to look for, what, what are the signs we should be looking for in terms of his return. And then he tells us to watch. Don't be deceived. There is a way that he's going to return. There are things that are going to happen that lead up to his return. There, there are things that are going to begin the process, but then that's not the end. That's just the beginning. And then there are particular things we need to look for, and then there's a particular way that he's going to return, despite all the claims to the contrary. So he says, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. But know this. So you don't know what hour he's going to come. We don't know what hour he's going to come. But know that this is what we have to know. That if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. So there's a good man of the house. So there's the house, and then there's somebody who's responsible for the house. And if that person who's responsible for the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have been watching and would have been prepared. But because he doesn't know, then he relaxes and he stops watching for the household. And then the thief breaks in. And so we need to uh, spend a little bit of time on this concept of the thief coming in the night. And, and what does that mean? So Christ likens himself. He doesn't say that he is a thief, but he says his coming is like a thief. It's not that he is a thief, it's that his coming is like a thief. And so he keeps likening himself to a thief. And what do we know about a thief? Well, usually the thief is in disguise. He usually operates under cover of darkness. And, you know, when we read this, we typically think of the thief coming by surprise. But many people can come by surprise. There is a function that the thief serves. And the function of the thief is not simply to come by surprise. How do you know that your, th your home has been burgled? Things are missing. Things are missing. So Christ is saying he's going to come like a thief. That means he's going to come. His coming is going to be disguised. It's not going to be recognizable. And his coming is going to be associated with loss. Something that people have is going to be taken away from them. In Revelation 3, and verse 3, you'll remember we read, Remember, therefore, how you have received. So this is, again, what Hebrews have to remember. Who have they heard this from? How have they received and heard? And hold fast. Same thing he's saying in Matthew 24. You must endure to the end. Same thing we're reading in Hebrews. Don't turn back. Hold fast. And repent. If, therefore, you shall not watch, I will come on you as a thief. Again, he's not saying that he is a thief. He's saying that his coming will be like a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. So it's very, very clear that God is speaking to the church and saying my coming to the church is going to be like a thief. That means what you have will be taken away from you by surprise. You're not going to know. You're just going to wake up and you've been burgled. In, in, in Revelation 16, 15, he says, Behold, I come as a thief. I'm not a thief, but my coming is like a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And that's again why we read at the beginning of Revelation, blessed is he who reads and keeps reading, and they who hear and keep hearing. Because the time's going to come when people don't want to hear. You know, it's like the two, uh, witness, the two witnesses, the two spies. 
12 spies went into the land. And 10 came back and said, no, no, this is bad. This is bad news. And two came back faithful and said, no, this is good news. Yes, there are giants in the land, but there's also abundance in the land. And that's for us. God promised it to us. Let's go and take the land. And what was the result? The whole nation went with the 10 because that was easier. We don't want to have to fight. We don't want to face giants. Let's, let's agree with the 10. And let's not just agree with the 10. Let's stone the two faithful witnesses of God. Let's stone them to death. And so this is brother will betray brother. And so blessed is he who reads. We don't want to get to a point like, oh no, it's the book of Revelation. Oh, I hate the book of Revelation. It's so, so much bad news in there. So many giants in there. No, 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 no. We're going to keep reading because we're watching and things are unfolding. And he's coming as a thief to those who fall asleep. Blessed he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now in Luke 18, when we were in Luke, there's a, there's a statement here which is very troubling. He says, I tell you that he's going to avenge his servants, even though he tarries long. And that's the whole point here, is that you know, how much longer, Lord? White robes were given to them and they told to wait. He that endures to the end. Is it the end yet? No, not yet. A bit longer. And so he says, he's going to avenge his servants. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, and he's coming like a thief, shall he find faith on the earth? And this is the point. Christ is not a thief, but his coming is likened to a thief. And we have to understand the operation of a thief. He comes in disguise. He comes under cover of darkness. He comes when you're not expecting it. And he comes to plunder. He comes to take away what's yours. And what's yours is this faith. This faith that we have in Christ, it's yours. But the return of Christ is like a thief that is going to take the faith of the believers away. That right before he returns, there's going to be a massive apostasy. Apostasy is the order of the day for Christ's return. So he, he says that, you know, we're going to be seduced if we're not careful, by evil spirits. And so all the brethren that we see today, so many believe, well, the return of Christ is like a thief, and it's going to be taking faith away, so that when he comes, shall he find faith on the earth. Continuing in Matthew 24, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened. And if, notice this, it's immediately after. So there's tribulation, and then coupled with the tribulation, is the darkening of the sun, the moon and the light, and the, the moon not giving his light, and the stars falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven shaken. So it says, Therefore be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. So the whole question, Matthew 23 to 25, the subject matter is the return of Christ and what happens immediately before he returns. And what happens immediately before he returns, it's like a thief. That unless we have this knowledge, unless we have the knowledge of the book of Revelation and the encouragement from the book of Hebrews, that the things that are going to take place on the earth before Christ returns are going to take people's faith away. That the, the love is going to wax cold. We're going to betray one another. We're going to join with the nations and hate one another unless we are staying true to the Word of God. But these events are the thief of faith. 
these events immediately before Christ returns are going to steal the faith of many because they're not expecting it. So that when he returns, there's hardly any faith. So therefore, be you also ready. Same thing he says in the epistles in Revelation. For in such an hour as you think not. It's going to be the opposite of what we think. That's why he's telling us ahead of time. It's going to appear like, wow. It's, it's, it's in our interest to reject Christ, just as the Hebrews are think, were thinking about. It's actually better to go with the system and, and cooperate and comply. And in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Who is it? So he asks the question, given all of this that's going to take place, who then is a faithful and wise servant? We need to know. Whom, so it's not just any faithful and wise servant, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household? Who is this faithful and wise servant that the Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. So the household is going to be broken into. The good man of the house should be watching so that the house is not broken into. But because we don't know the hour that the thief will come, the good man of the house takes his eye off the ball, takes his eye from the window, goes to sleep maybe, and then the house is broken into and everybody in the household suffers. So given this context of the coming of Christ like a thief in the night, that the coming is going to take the faith away from many, the question is now asked, who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord has made ruler over his household? And why did he make, them make him ruler over his household? To give them meat in due season. That as the seasons change, somebody needs to be digging into the word of God to be that one or that category of servant that is able to give meat in due season. Okay, this is the meat you need now. Okay, now the world changed. Now this is the meat that you need. Now we need to go over here. Now this part of the word of God is coming alive. You need to eat this. Who's going to take that role? So we need to recognize that there is a role like this. And in fact, if we go back to an interesting scripture in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 12, 32. This is the time when David was ascending to the throne and Israel and Judah were coming together to unite under David. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times. They understood the times. So they understood the word of God and the will of God, and they understood what was going on around them. They had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So the reason they had understanding of the times is so that they could meet, give meat in due season and tell Israel, this is how you ought to behave now. This is what you need to do. The heads of them were 200 and all their brethren were at their commandment. So they were over the households. And there were 200 of them. So it's a similar situation that we see now in Matthew 24, when Christ asks, Who then is that faithful servant, whom the Lord has appointed ruler over the household? He's the good man of the house. And it's a category of servant that is watching and reading and studying and observing and able to give meat in due season. He says, Blessed is that servant. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. So the servant that says, okay, I love you and I'll feed the sheep. Blessed is that servant. 
whom his Lord, when he comes, so his whole thing is, this whole thing is well, when is he coming? And nobody knows. And his coming is like a thief in the night. And it's going to get a lot of people, catch a lot of people off guard. But this servant, when he comes, he needs to find this category of service or servant so doing. So it becomes clear now that not everybody falls asleep. That there are people who are devoted to watching. And, and the Holy Spirit will always ensure that there is this category of servant that is watching and understanding and, and able to read the signs of the times and give meat in due season because of their love for the brethren. And when Christ returns, he says, will he find faith on the earth? Well, here's the answer. That when he comes, there will be a servant or servants so doing. So when he returns, there are servants that are giving meat in due season. And there's a household that is receiving the meat. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. So there's a great reward, as difficult as the job may be, there's a great reward, and Paul says that, I know now has come the time of my demise, and there's a crown laid up for me, and not for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. So Paul was looking forward to a crown, and he says here that, you know, if Paul was alive when he returns, he will make him ruler over all his There's a crown. This is about reigning with God. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. It's, 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 it's weird. Because all of this stuff is going on. The world is basically falling apart. And he's still not here. And Christians are being hunted down and being disappeared, uh, being taken to prison. And then there's a narrative spun that uh, this is the reason why. And people say, oh, he, he deserved it. And it's just not true. But you can't get a counter-narrative. There's only one version of the story that goes out. And so people are just giving up. And they say, he's, he's delaying his coming. And then shall begin to smite his fellow servants. So the brother will betray brother. This is going back to the beginning of the chapter. That it's a time when it's so terrible that this apostasy kicks in and people are not studying the Word of God. Instead of studying the Word of God, they're, they're being consumed by their Netflix and their, um, uh, I don't know, not Netflix, Spotify, uh, Apple Tunes, Apple iTunes, Apple TV, all these different magnificent forms of high-definition entertainment, but they all contain doctrine. They all contain philosophy. And year after year, decade after decade, our minds are being reprogrammed, and we don't realize it. And if we're not studying our scriptures, our brains are being warped. We're being brainwashed, and we don't realize it. And so they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand the signs of the times. And so they begin to smite the fellow servants. Instead of, by, uh, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another, they begin to smite the fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The drunken are the ideologically possessed. So those that just allow themselves to be possessed by ideology, brethren, are going to go over and be possessed by this ideology and be warped and be twisted and be brainwashed and be ideologically possessed and eat and drink. And I've got this guy emailing me to tell me it's Allah is the God of the Bible. Go and read the Quran. Go and read the Hadith. Go and read the Sirah and read your Bible and try and reconcile it. You can't. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day 
when he looks not for him. This is the whole point. Do not be deceived about the coming of Christ. And, and when he comes, it's, it's at an hour that no one is expecting. It's sort of like the opposite. It's like, oh, he's never going to return. And that's the moment he returns. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him. So we have two different types of servants here. One servant is constantly studying the word, constantly observing what's going on in the world, bring, reconciling the two and giving meat in due season. This is the time for this meat. This is the time for this meat. And then there's another servant that's not studying and is getting caught up in what's going on and, and the superiority and the joy of ideological possession. And they're going over to that side. The Lord of that... So when he comes, there's two different types. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder. This is the Lord with a sharp two-edged sword that, that goes out of his mouth. Eyes like a flame of fire. He shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. So what we see here is faithful servants who hold on despite much opposition and cross the finish line. And when he returns, he, they're, doing, he, they're caught in the act of righteousness, of right doing. Then we have the apostates who have given up and turned themselves over to evil. But then there's also this group of hypocrites who are kind of in the faith, but not really. But it appears like they are. And they're doing wrong. They're wrongdoing in the body of Christ and causing conflict and persecution in the body of Christ. He says he's going to appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And, and this is, uh, it's just a terrifying verse or, or phrase. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We saw in John that when Christ returns, our sorrow shall be turned to joy. But what this is saying is that there is a portion of people in the body that when Christ returns, they're actually in a state of joy and superiority and ease. And that joy, superiority and ease is going to be reversed. It's going to be upended. They're going to be appointed with the hypocrites. And Christ says, and we cannot, we cannot undo this, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, that needs to, we can't read over this. This needs to sink in. You've been, we've been running the marathon. We've been in this race. We've suffered a lot of agony in this race. And somehow the race just gets too hard, you know. After running, I don't know, 30 kilometers or 20 miles, whatever the equivalent is in, in, um, in miles in the imperial system, and after we're agonizing, and there's so much more race left to be run, and now we have to run uphill, and now it's getting cold, and now people are trying to push us over, and a lot of people are just going, it's too hard, it's too hard. And God says, you know what? There's going to be such regret that you've been a part of this and you've, and you've turned back. God forbid. But it's going to happen. Now we come into Matthew 25. And I just want to spend a little bit of time on Matthew 25. Because I didn't mention this uh, two weeks ago. And I just want to revisit it. 
then, at this time, when Christ returns and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be likened unto ten virgins. We're going to look back and say, you know what? It's like there were ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And it's important that we see these are virgins. Virgins is a symbolic language to say they are not defiled by false religion. These are people who have the right doctrine. They have the right understanding. They understand who God is. So they're virgins. Which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. This is tremendous disappointment. All of this teaching, this unit of teaching from Matthew 23 to the end of Matthew 25, it's all about the return of Christ. Understanding what it means, what happens before he returns and how devastating it is, and how it's going to deceive people into believing that he has returned when he hasn't, or that he's not going to return, that he's, he's taking too long and might as well give up. And there's going to be great disappointment. There's going to be great joy, but there's going to be great disappointment as well. He says, five of them were wise and five were foolish. So again, we see, and you'll see in Matthew 24, uh, that you know, two are in the field, one is taken, the other is left, that there's this polarization in the church. And so it's not necessarily 50-50, but it's two groups. There's two groups. One group is wise, one group is foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. So they're, they're going with the flow. They have the rituals. They appear to be doing what's right, but not really. That what we learn from Hebrews is that this righteousness is exercised by doing. And, and, and Paul says that the Hebrews had grown dull. Their, their senses were not exercised. Because they had this knowledge, but it was slipping away, and they weren't doing. And we have to do in order to develop our, our religious, our righteous sensibilities. So they were there, they're in services, they're listening to the messages, but they're not doing anything. Versus the other group that's actually doing. So they, those that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So as we do, God fills up more Holy Spirit. While the bridegroom tarried, and this is, we read Revelation, we read here in Matthew 24, in John, over and over and over, he's, he's delaying his coming. When we think he should come, it's not yet. He that endures to the end, and the finish line just, it's like our understanding where we think the finish line is, it's like, no, we have to push it out further. And people are saying, you foolish Christians, why do you even believe that he's returning? So while the bridegroom tarries, he's going to tarry. When we think it should be over, it's not, it's more. And then suddenly it's over. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Now earlier I said, not everybody slumbers and sleeps. Because it said that, who is this faithful servant that the Lord appoints over the house, who's watching and is, is fulfilling his duty of giving meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom, when the Lord comes, find him so doing. So he's not sleeping, he's doing. And Christ returns and finds him so doing. But this is saying that the, the virgins all slumbered and slept. So there's one over the household and then those in the household. And those in the household have fallen asleep, despite the meat in due season. And at midnight was a cry made. 
Behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. So, who's making the cry? It's the one that is giving meat in due season. And so now the season has come to say, the this is it, the bridegroom is coming. So somehow there's an understanding, despite the fact that there's so much deception around the Lord's coming, there is an understanding of his coming and how it's packaged. And there's one, or there's a category that are watching that understand the package. And they're saying, nope, not yet. Nope, not yet. This is what you need to know now. This is how we need to be reinforced. This is what we need to be focusing on. Stay strong. Make sure we love one another. Let's really build up our congregations. Let's build up our communal understanding. Let's develop our gifts. Let's make sure we're edifying one another. Let's get rid of, the, despite the evil that's all around us, the iniquity that's all around us, let's be righteous. Let's turn to righteousness. All of that is meat in due season. And then there's this understanding. This is it. He's coming. Go you out to meet him. And this go you out to meet him, it's almost like go and meet your maker. Go you out to meet him, I don't see right now as, oh, he's coming in the clouds and uh, let's just, it's just an immediate uh, uh, reunion uh, with the Lord or union or reunion with the Lord. No. Go you out to meet him means nobody understands that this is it. And those over the household giving meat in due season understand the package and now is the time to just go all out and that means witnessing preaching the gospel facing whatever opposition and being faithful unto death and he'll give us a crown of life and so this go you out to meet him it, it, it to me but the sense that i get here is it's a very difficult thing to do it's not easy and it's not easy and we can see and i'll just come back to it here but in matthew 24 We need to understand from reading Matthew 24 that the appearing of the Lord is a package. It's not just, oh look, the sun is dark, the Lord is appearing. It's a package. And so he says, this gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So this preaching and the end are a package. So this preaching takes right takes place right up into the end. And so go you out to meet him could very well mean go all out and preach this gospel despite the fact that the beast is at its, its pinnacle. The beast power is at its pinnacle, it's at its height. And everyone has given up on Christ. We don't give up. And now is the time to go out all out and preach even unto death. And the scripture says they love not their lives unto the death. Notice now in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation, of those days. So there's tremendous tribulation. Go you out to meet him. And this is tribulation for the saints. And immediately after, packaged with the tribulation, is the darkening of the sun. And this is what he says, to look for his return. And the moon will not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And he says in Matthew 24, when he's saying that there's this package, that immediately before my return, the beast power is intense. And it's, it's irresistible. But immediately, packaged with that, is my return. That's when I return. And so the, the, Satan is at his full, all-out onslaught. And that's, I'm going to stop it, and that's when I return. And in that context, he says, now learn a parable of the fig tree. So we have to understand this fig tree parable. 
when his branch is yet tender, so it's a young plant, it's a healthy plant, it's not like an old plant that's not functioning properly. It's a young plant, it's a young plant. When its branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So there's this understanding of the package that when the leaves come out, summer comes. It's a package. And so Christ is saying, if you're going to understand my appearing, you need to understand the package. Because when the leaves come out, that's the deception. When the leaves appear, that's when everybody believes, oh, Christ is not coming. Because the leaves appearing are persecution. It's hatred. It's, it's sorrow. It's the beast flexing its muscles. And when you see that, you know that summer is near. So it's this understanding that the return of Christ is a package. And there's something that happens immediately before it that operates like a thief. And it takes the faith away from the saints. Except for those saints who understand and are encouraged by what's happening. And then he appears. So he says here, So likewise you, so the same way that you understand the coupling of the leaves appearing in the summer, in the same way, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. So there's one who is understanding what is going on, who's understanding the word of God, who's giving meat in due season, and who's understanding this package. And there's a time when this type of servant can say, this is it. Go you out to meet him. <clears throat> and there's, you know, the Holy Spirit is either with us at that point or it's not. And we can face whatever we have to face, or we can't. Then all those virgins arose. So somebody says, this is it. He's the, this is the time. Go you out to meet him. That person who says that is not sleeping. He's over the household watching. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, so they realize, by, by trimming their lamps, they realize they don't have the faith. When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith. They have been playing. And now we have to face the, the viciousness that is associated with the return of Christ. And they say unto the wise, please, give us of your oil. We can't face this. For our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go you rather to them that sell. So there's, there's divergence in the household, but there's a category of people who sell. Somebody has the word of God, and they're giving meat in due season. That's where we got our oil from. You should go to them and, and get your oil and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. And you see here in Revelation, he counsels uh, Laodicea to buy gold tried in the fire. So go and buy to them that sell. And be prepared to go through tribulation. Because that's the process. But you need Holy Spirit to do that. And so he says here, to learn this parable of the fig tree, that this is how it's going to operate. He says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So there's this understanding that all of this comes as a package. And we just have to understand the timing of the package because as it gets worse, it's actually indicating we're getting closer and closer to the appearing of the Lord. And as it gets intenser, more and more intense, it's discouraging. And people are giving up. 
when if we understood the parable of the fig tree, it would actually be encouraging. And we would realize at the very moment we think he's not going to appear, that's the moment he's going to stop everything and appear. Go you out to meet him. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. We have to be immersed in his words. But notice this, but of that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So this is the exact timing of his return. We don't know. So we just have to be on our game, oil in the lamp, watching, giving meat in due season, being aware of what's going on in the world around us, not being seduced because there's a massive program, massive agenda, uh, operation of seduction and deception, and not being seduced about his return. He says, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So it's going to be just like the days of Noah. No, no, so we have to uh, understand, well, what was it like in the days of Noah? Because that's what he says it's going to be like in this end time. For as in the days that were before the... So we don't actually, we don't actually have to go to Genesis to understand uh, what was it like in the days of Noah. We can just uh, stay right here in Matthew 24 because Christ is going to tell us what it was like in the days of Noah. For as in the days of Noah that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, so having a whale of a time, having a wonderful time, marrying and giving in marriage. So marriage never goes away. It's just that it's perverted. The very union that should picture Christ and the church gets perverted. And millions of, for example, millions and millions of people, even people in God's church, celebrating adultery. Celebrating adultery. So they're going to be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah enters the ark. And so that's what, that's what he says. It's the, nobody knows. And they're, they're going to be having a wonderful time. And it's going to be discouraging to the saints. The saints are actually going to believe that Christ is no longer returning. Because in an hour that you think not, that's when he appears. It's a package. And so we need to understand the days of Noah. The flood was part of a package. And there was partying and joy before the flood came. And then it came. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not. They did not know until the flood came. So they're not going to know until Christ returns. But if we're watching, we know. Noah knew the flood was coming. He wasn't surprised by the flood. He knew it was coming. He just didn't know when. Exactly. So in the same way that they didn't know, and they're marrying, and they're having their perversion, and they're having a wonderful time, and life is good for them. Not so good for the saints. But the saints who understand, understand, go ahead, have your time. Because the more you're having a good time, the more the persecution of the saints intensifies, the more we know that it could be any moment because it's a package. And this very persecution that's going to uh, rob the saints of their faith, because we understand this, we're not going to be scandalized. We are not going to be offended. And we are not going to allow these circumstances to rob us of our faith and knew not until the flood came, and took them all away. So also, so shall also, the coming, the appearing of the Son of Man be. This is the way it's going to be. It's a package that his return, in a way, comes out of nowhere. It is the exact opposite of what you'd expect. 
you're seeing the triumph of the beast power all over the world. It's, Christianity has become ridiculous. It's become a, a, a byword. It's, it's a joke. And whatever this totalitarian system is, it's, the, it's triumphant. It's the, you, know, you join with it and you can have the mark of the beast and you're just having a wonderful time. And it looks like you are established. Those that dwell, they're established in the earth. And then out of nowhere, Christ appears. And those who have allowed their faith to be robbed because his appearing is packaged with these events that happened immediately before, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the way it's going to be. It's just going to come out of nowhere, apparently. So two will be in the field again, this idea of the church being categorized into two sections. One will be taken and the other left. And so, you know, the one taken, is that the one that's in, taken into the ark? Or is it the one that's taken by the flood? It, right now we don't know. I think as time unfolds it will become clearer. But it's very clear that there are two categories. One category pleases God, the other category does not. Even though both are in the body of believers. Two shall be, it doesn't say women, it's two shall be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore. <laughs> this is it. Pay attention. Same message to the Hebrews. You're falling asleep. You're growing dull. You're going backwards. Take heed. Take the more earnest heed because these words come from the Lord. So these words are red letter. They come from the Lord. Watch therefore. Pay attention. Don't let this slip away because it's obvious from the Lord's words that which cannot pass away. It becomes very obvious. Many, not a few. I wish it said a few. It says many are going to be offended. Watch therefore that we don't... So the category, these two categories, it's not half and half. It's just two categories. But in the category of apostasy and hypocrisy, it's many. And the ones that endure to the end are few. So we need to fight earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered. Watch therefore, he's saying... Because I'm telling you all of this, pay attention. Don't allow yourself to grow dull. For you know not what hour your Lord does come. And it's an hour that you don't expect. It's an hour that you think, this is, this, there's no way any of this that's going on can be reversed. This is triumph, triumph, and they're established, and they're victorious. And right then is when he appears. So we talked about the good man of the house. And uh, the, the virgin saying, open to us. And he says, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know not the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. So we can now understand how Hebrews applies to us when we understand we're facing what they faced. What they faced in the first century, 2,000 years later, we're facing the same thing. We're facing the same decision-making process, and we have access to the same counsel that they had access to. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? And then in chapter 3, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This is who we're, t this is who we're talking to. It's not just any old, you know, everybody. This is talking to the partakers of the heavenly calling to consider the apostle 
and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Let us therefore fear. Let's be afraid of this. Let's take this seriously. Lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you, no exceptions, no once saved, always saved, any of you should seem to come short of it. So he's called of God, he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and so we're going to be spending a lot of time now about his superiority as high priest. Why? Because he's merciful. That yes, he's an apostle, and we have to take his word seriously, and we'll be condemned if we don't, but then he's a high priest, and he's there to help us. And so we can go to his throne boldly and ask for this help. And he says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. So Paul is responsible for giving meat in due season, but he's realizing he has a challenge here. There's this very uh, high order of knowledge about the priesthood of Christ, and he wants to deliver this very strong meat, very uh, deep understanding, and he realizes they're dull of hearing. And so for us, you know, it could be these prophecies in Revelation, in Matthew 24, that we want people to understand, but they've grown dull. I, I don't want to hear, oh, there goes Adrian again. He's just, every time he talks, it's bad news. Or whoever the minister is. Oh, prophecy, prophecy. Why do we always have to talk about prophecy? You've grown, you've become dull of hearing. You should be excited. This is your eternal life we're talking about. And the same way the first century Hebrews have grown dull of hearing, we're going to have a period now where people are falling asleep. Well, give us smooth things. We don't want these difficult problems. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Stone those two faithful witnesses. We don't want to hear this. Grown dull of hearing. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. So we have to go all the way back to the foundation, which is what the Hebrews had. And you've become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So we need to become skillful. This is how we build up oil in our lamps, by becoming skillful in the word of righteousness. And the only way we can become skillful in the word of righteousness is if we are applying it. Good doctrine is not words in a booklet. Good doctrine is not what you hear in a sermon. Good doctrine is not academic. Good doctrine is what teaches us to change our behavior. Good doctrine is what we apply. Good doctrine is righteousness. And as we apply it and the Holy Spirit teaches us, this is how we gain wisdom. So he says, everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. So one has to give meat in due season. And as the season intensifies, the meat needs to get stronger. But then we've got people who only want milk. <laughs> You've been in church for, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 50 years. And we can only give milk. <clears throat> we need to be exercising righteousness so that we can receive the strong meat. What people think is bad news, we're like, no, this is the word of the Lord. And we, we, we are with the Lord. And so as we digest this strong meat, we're like, wow, our, our understanding opens up. Strong meat uh, it belongs to them who are of full age, even those, listen to this, 
who by reason of use, this is the difference between the virgins that were wise and the virgins that were foolish. The virgins that were wise, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So these Hebrews have been, in the first century, uh, ra reasoning with themselves and with each other, and rationalizing their behavior, and believing they can turn their back on Jesus Christ, and go to the temple, and participate in a, in a form of righteousness, and not realizing turning your back on Christ, that is evil. That is the height of wickedness. But they've justified it in their mind. And in the same way, as we move into this era of ideological possession, that because we're just so into the entertainment of this world, and our minds are being reprogrammed by those who do the programming, as opposed to by the Word of God, we're being warped, and we are having our senses messed up, and we can no longer discern, you know, 12 million people rejoicing over adultery, and Christians as well instead of having our senses exercised so that we can discern both good and evil. Coming into chapter 6 now as we wrap up. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. These are like fundamental principles. We need to move on. You don't stay in the milk forever. So what you received in, in Judaism as Hebrews, this was from Christ, and it's the basics. But these basics are the foundation. They were pointing to something. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Don't stay there and go backwards. It's time to grow up. We need to go forward. These were pointing us to something. Let us go on unto maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works of, and of faith towards God. So all of this they would have learned as Hebrews in the Judaic uh, ethic. Uh, repentance, John taught that. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms. And this is really the clue that we know he's talking about Judaism because there is no doctrine of baptisms in Christianity. There's the doctrine of baptism, singular, but this is plural. Washing, doctrine of washings and of laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgments. All of that is foundational. And if we just quit fast forward to uh, Hebrews, we'll see here that, uh, speaking of this time to come, uh, in which were offered gifts and sacrifices that could not make him, that did serve as perfect, so the, pre the high priest wasn't perfect by doing this, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks, and notice this, and diverse baptisms, different baptisms. So this is speaking of the uh, Judaic uh, system that had all of these foundational doctrines to point to Christ. And so we just, I just wanted to call that out. The, the plural form of um, washings or baptisms really has to do with Judaism. And uh, Christ is the high priest of a greater and more perfect tabernacle. We'll come to chapter 9 in a few weeks. So uh, we're leaving these uh, foundations that were given to us in Judaism as the Hebrews, they would have this, it's time to move on and go on to maturity. And he says here, so we, we're going to leave this. Uh, he says, you know, we can't just lay again this um, foundation. We need to go on unto maturity. So let's, let's not go backwards, let's go forward. And then he says this, and this will we do if God permits. 
So we're going to go on. You see, even though you're babes and you're there, I can only give you milk. I have strong meat I have to give you. You need to grow up. We need to go on. This, this is an intense period of persecution. You need to grow up fast and face this. So he says, and this will we do, if God permit. And he says, we're going to do this because it is impossible. And this is a very controversial scripture now. And this really kills the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And so you'll hear these people, the Calvinists, when they come to this scripture, you will never hear them come to this scripture beginning in Hebrew chapter 1 and tracing the line of reasoning from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3 to chapter 4, coming into chapter 5, coming into chapter 6, and to stay with Paul's line of reasoning coming up to chapter 6, so that there's context. This, this chapter didn't just drop out of the air. It's like Matthew 24. It didn't just come out of th thin air. This chapter is in the context of everything that's come before it. So there's a specific audience that he's talking to, and he's talking to them about a very specific matter, and it's a very uh, intense message. Now we, we take it as a sermonic letter. That seems like it's a sermon that was transcribed. And so this is a real upbraiding of these people. And so this does, you can't just kind of bring this out of thin air. You have to keep it in the context. Those who've tasted of the heavenly calling. And so he's saying to them now, we're, we're going to go on to the meat. And I'm going to tell you about Melchizedek. And I'm going to strengthen you to face whatever persecution you have to face. Because God is merciful. And I, and I you know, it's impossible. I, we're going to see, they really, he really believes they're going to repent. And they're going to get their act together. Because it's impossible for those who are once enlightened. And notice, these are conditions. And this word and, <clears throat> in the Greek, it's the word chi. And it's fine to translate it in this context as and, except with the nuance. That it has what, what they say is a cumulative effect. It's like you're layering one thing on top of the other. So, so we're saying and, and then we're putting something, and then and, and we're built. It's like building blocks. We're building a tower. So it's impossible for those who, number one, they were once enlightened. So they, 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 their eyes have been opened by God, and they've tasted of the heavenly gift. In chapter three, he says, "Partakers of the heavenly calling." So they've they've tasted of the heavenly gift, and then you build on top of that. They are partakers of the Holy Spirit. So they've received the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, I can't understand how people try to say these are not real believers. <laughs> God is not playing. this, And I, I believe I explained this before, that this Calvinism versus Arminianism, it's an older conflict to do with uh, Pelagius and uh, Aristotle, and um, uh, uh, I forget his name now, it begins with an A. Uh, he's a big, big thinker in the Christian world, uh, Augustine. Uh, so Augustine and, and I believe with Pelagius, and that actually goes back to a conflict between Plato and Aristotle, and between whether it's about works and building up your, your works to get right with God, or it's about God's will and his sovereign will, and he just chooses, and whoever he chooses, they're going to be fine, and whoever he doesn't. This whole conflict has nothing to do with the Hebrews. The Hebrews is all about covenant. And, and this is about people who are turning their back on the covenant. And they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And this says if, but it's another chi, and they shall fall away. So these six conditions together, taken together, 
if somebody comes into the faith, and these Hebrews were people of the faith, they're partakers of the heavenly calling, that if they satisfy these six conditions, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. This is it. This is the unpardonable sin. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. So the very thing that can save us, which is the crucifixion of Christ, the, the, His sacrifice, His offering that He did once for all, they've rejected it, and what, they think that He's going to be able to sacrifice again for them? The, very, the only way to salvation, the only thing that can redeem mankind, they've rejected the blood of Christ. And they've satisfied all of these conditions in order to reject it. Paul is saying, you know what? If this is the path you go down, then there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, the unpardonable sin that Christ spoke of, he says, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but there is a sin that's not forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And that's what we're seeing here with these six conditions. When these six conditions are met, that Holy Spirit, that comforter that he promised in John 16, which will testify of Christ and will glorify Christ, that when they reject this and degrade Christ, the Holy Spirit does not do that. So this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and it is the unpardonable sin. <clears throat> For the earth, so now, now suddenly he goes into this metaphor, as we wrap up here. For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it and brings forth herbs, meat for them, appropriate for them, by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. So it's impossible to renew these, this category of people who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And then he says that the earth which receives the rain and brings forth herbs or produce, appropriate for them for whom it's dressed, that earth receives blessing from God. <clears throat> but that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is near unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So the earth is not there for itself. It receives the rain, not for itself, to produce fruit. And that fruit is for others. And when the earth behaves in this functional way, it's blessed. But when it just bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and it's cursed, whose end is to be burned. And it's like the fig tree that Christ saw and there was no fruit on it and he cursed it. Because there's an expectation of bearing fruit. So in the same way, this body of believers, we're not here for ourselves. God has recruited us to put into service as Israel to serve the whole world, to be that kingdom of priests to bring the whole world to God. So this is the expectation that we will bear fruit so that we are useful to God. And I just want to conclude by pointing back to a prophecy in Isaiah, where Isaiah says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it. So there's an expectation of this vineyard. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it. So he's doing everything he can to set this up for success. 
and also made a wine press therein. So there's this expectation of fruit from the vine from the vineyard, and he's, he's got up a, a wine press because of the expectation of the fruit. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. We could say um, poisonous grapes. Grapes that have a horrible stench, and it's just like, this is a disaster. I've set up everything for success. I've got the wine press ready. I'm going to make the wine, and this is just, I'm really looking forward to the harvest here. And I get wild grapes. And wild is not a good translation. It would be better to say poisonous, uh, uh, spoiled, rotten grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, this should put us in mind of Matthew 23, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? To tell me, is there anything more I could do? You Hebrews, is there anything more I could do for you? Therefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth rotten, poisonous grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, so that protection that was around it, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. This is the future of the Hebrews. And I will lay it waste. There was an expectation. And when the rain comes down and, and the fruit is produced, there's a blessing pronounced. But when there's just thorns and thistles and it's useless and poisonous and harmful, I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns. So this is, again, what Hebrews 6, what Paul is pointing back to. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. You Hebrews are the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. So you are to be this nation of kings and priests who should have good judgment, but instead you're, you've, you're drunk with the drunken, and you're smiting your fellow servants. Instead of judgment and mercy, I'm seeing oppression. And I looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry. This is the state of the Hebrews. And this is what Paul was warning against. And this is what our Lord was warning against in Matthew 24 and 25 and throughout Revelation. And this is why our study of the book of Hebrews is so fundamental. It's not just a history lesson. Oh yeah, in the first century those Hebrews were so silly. It's, point, it's a resource for us to face the future that the Lord has prophesied. Heaven and earth will pass away but his words will not pass away. And so we need to be looking and watching for the return of the Lord. And what you see now with this trigger of uh, the wrongful imprisonment, uh, sentencing and imprisonment of this independent journalist who is just trying to keep in the mind, and, and you know, they're saying he was uh, perverting the course of justice. This was at the sentencing. There was no uh, more jury listening to the trial. This was at the sentencing. And he just wanted the British people to be aware of the sentencing and whether it was a light sentencing or an appropriate sentencing for the heinous, uh, terrible evil and wickedness 
that has been done to young girls in Britain. And he's just disappeared. Just taken away like that. Basically sentenced to death for trying to be an independent journalist. And, and free press is the foundation of democratic society. So this now has triggered uh, um, marches all over England, in fact, all over the world. And it's something like this, not necessarily this, but it's going to be things like this that cause ethnic group to rise up against ethnic group. It's not just kingdom against kingdom, but ethnic group against ethnic group. Civil war. And when that happens inside our democratic countries, this is hell. This is hell on earth. And it's the beginning of the whole unraveling of everything that we have known. Everything we understand about how society works will be unraveled when ethnic group goes against ethnic group. We must not get caught up in any of this. We count everything as dung compared to this high calling and the prize that God extends to us. This, this first resurrection that we are pursuing. So let's not get caught up in all of this, but let's be aware that the return of the Lord is packaged with an intense period of distress and discouragement. And at the height of that distress, at the height of that discouragement, when we think he's not coming, that's the signal. Go you out to meet him. So watch therefore, because he's coming. And he is our Lord, he is our husband-to-be, He's our Savior, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's praise Him no matter what.